Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. So chapter 3, just verses 1 to 10, it's this healing scene here with Peter and John and the lame man. Let's, let's read that. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay, so... Um, November 9th, 1989, East Germany. For those of you old enough to remember, there was an East Germany. Um, there's, it's a typical day. A bunch of reporters gather in a room ready to hear the, the daily press conferences from the communist government of East Germany. And a man by the name of Gunter Szabowski stands up to the microphone. And he has done this before. He's a politician. And he has done these, these briefings before. And they're pretty simple. The day before, he gets a, a, a readout, a printout of everything he has to say. And it's pretty mundane, usually. It just, these, these reports just talked about what was going on with the government, things that were happening, nothing too major. And as a result, as he was driving to this, pre, this political this press conference, he didn't really pay attention to what he used, he just scanned it briefly. And so as he's reading it for the first time, really, in, de- in detail to the reporters, he makes a comment and says, Um, the borders at the Berlin Wall will now be open for people to travel to the West. And all the reporters are shocked. They're like, that's weird. And so Tom Brokaw apparently was there, and he puts his hand up as a reporter. He says, uh, what do you mean? We can, people can just leave communist Germany and go into the West? And he, he realizes, oh my goodness, what did I just say? So he reads it again, he says, yeah. That's what it says, because he didn't really, what he didn't realize was what the, what the rule actually said was you could now apply for a visa to leave, but we're, it's going to be a lottery. Only one or two people will be allowed to go, which means no one's going to be allowed to go. But he didn't get that part. All he said was, yeah. And then when they asked him again, they said, well, when? When does this start? He looks around, not knowing what to say, and he says, it comes into effect according to my information immediately, without delay. Well, this causes a panic. And so thousands of East Germans rush to the Berlin Wall to go to leave. And as they get there, this guy, Harold Jagger, who's a young, poor young guy, look how young he is, he is the border guard. <laughs> and he's standing there, and he's like, and he actually heard the press conference while he was eating lunch, and he says he choked, because he said, what did he just say? 
the border's opening, there's three guys at the border. And so he's not sure what to do. So when all these crowds come, he starts phoning people. What's going on? What's happening? What, do they need passports? I don't understand. And everybody's confused. The whole world, everybody on the East German government is confused. They don't know what to say, and there's, as a result, there's indecision. Because nobody wants to be the one who says, open the borders. But they also don't want to say, shut them down, because they're afraid now that thousands are going to start a revolt. And so what does Harold Jagger do? He has to make a decision, this poor young man, and he opens the border. And they go through. So, why am I bringing up this story? This is why. This was an innocuous moment. It was supposed to be like every other day. Nothing catastrophic was supposed to happen, and yet it did. And so there's so many times you can see all through history these things that look insignificant. If you look at the history of how we found oil in Alberta and the oil sands, it's just some guy saw some sludge. Now it's bajillions of dollars. And we look at this passage here with Peter and John talking to this lame man. It's actually rather insignificant historically. No, there wasn't a merchant in Thebes who cared it was happening. The emperor in Rome certainly didn't care. Most people in the world today could care less that this happened. And yet, and think about the moment. It's two guys who are recently retired fishermen who have now become disciples of some renegade Jewish sect. They have now, they're walking into the temple to go worship, and they turn to a guy who's sick and say, stand up. That's pretty much all that happens. And yet this moment, seemingly so innocuous, is actually not just foundational and, and transform, transformative for the lame man, but for anyone who reads this story, it is transformational. And I'm going to try to, to if possible, say that when you read this story, it actually should challenge you. It should challenge, and the challenge it makes to us, because it's radical what's, what, what Peter is doing here, it's so radical that it challenges us to make a commitment. And one way or the other, you come away from this passage, either rejecting or accepting Christ, but being indifferent. One of the things that Christianity doesn't allow to us is what, unfortunately, too many Christians do. What you see in the New Testament is not people hearing about Jesus and saying, hey, great, I'm saved forever. I'm going to attend twice a month. I'm going to hang out with them. I'm going to read my Bible when I feel guilty enough. I'm going to give when I have enough money, and I'm going to serve when I have the time. You don't see that in the Bible. You see Christ rejected, and you see him ran to. But you do not see indifference and lukewarmness. And so this is why preachers like me will often tell you, commit already. Because if you're not either rejected, running from him or running to him, I have to assume you haven't met him. Just because the Bible doesn't tell me there's such a thing as a lukewarm person that is a Christian. So... With that being said, this passage will show us that as we meet Christ in this passage, our, our assumptions about everything are challenged, they're changed, and then there's a commitment. So we, 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 we can, we're confronted by a challenge, a change, and a commitment. Okay, so let's jump in to challenge. And I'm going to use a story I think I said back at Christmas last year. And because you all know everything I've ever said word for word, you, this, this, you'll, this will be boring to you. But 200 years ago, a poet named John Keats, very famous romantic poet from England, had a party, a dinner party. And in the party, he gives the toast. And as he gives the toast, he says about Isaac Newton, the, the scientist, he's very upset with Isaac Newton. And he says uh, he despised him because Newton destroyed the poetry of the rainbow by reducing it to a prism. And now, if you only think about the romantic poets, they were drawing, pushing against scientific advancement to an extent, because they said 
progress is good and we need it, but it robs us of wonder. And they hated it. They couldn't stand that now nobody would look at a rainbow and marvel anymore. Now they'd say, oh, water droplets, sun refraction, or light refraction, that's all it is. So they didn't like it, so they pushed back against it. And Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian, was a Canadian philosopher, world-renowned one, incredible philosopher, wrote a very big book called Our Secular Age. And in it, he talks about, uh, I don't think he addresses Keats directly, but he talks about this idea. And he says, once upon a time, humans were more open to wonder. And the way he describes it, he says, imagine every human is surrounded by a bubble. But it's not really a bubble, it's more like a chain-link fence. So you're walking around like it with a chain-link fence. And things can come in through the chain-link fence, but not everything. So a golf ball and a raindrop could come through, but a football can't. And he says, so in the, once upon a time, our bubble was porous. There was holes in it. And it allowed a certain degree of wonder to come in where you didn't feel like you could reduce everything to just a naturalistic world, just, just what you see and feel and material. He said, but what's happened over time with progress is the bubble and the fence has now become a wall and nothing gets in anymore. And so as a result, the rainbow is just a prism. There's no wonder in it. There's no pot of gold at the end of it. That's for sure. And there's certainly no miracle in its appearing or not appearing. It's just a rainbow now. And not just that, thunder is no longer the gods. It's not Zeus getting angry. Now it's just what happens when lightning strikes and rips through the sky and sound, etc. And so, and, and it goes even further. When you go to Disney World, that guy, in the, in the, there's that Mickey that's running around, it's just a failed actor. It's not Mickey. Children, sorry. No Mickey. Right? And so what Charles Taylor is rightly saying is we have been... It's, science is good, of course. Progress is good. But the danger of it is it has robbed us of wonder because now we think we know everything. And we have now developed this idea of something called the closed system. We now, most Canadians, without even thinking of it, and many Christians, believe the world is closed. Meaning, it's like a contained... Like imagine the world's in a snow globe. Nothing can affect the world that isn't already in it. So there's no God who can reach in and perform a miracle. There's no God who hears your prayers and then changes things inside the snow globe. All that you need and have is what's in the snow globe, and there's no way out, nothing else, just what's in the globe. And so this dominates the way we think today. Now, with all of this, let me now turn back to the passage. Oh, actually, let me say one more thing. This is why that movie, The Passion of the Christ, remember that movie that came out a few years back? Made $612 million. Millions of people saw it, but you know how many people were converted? Very few. Why? Because the system is so closed that they did not see the Son of God dying for them. They saw a man being beaten. That's all they saw. They saw the horrors of religious fanaticism that would beat a man who was trying to be nice. That's all it was. Because to them, this is not the Son of God. There's no incarnation. It's just a nice guy, maybe a lunatic. And so because the walls are closed, we don't see Christ as readily as we did. Like last week, we have to be a different church. We have to speak differently about God. But let's move now, now to the passage. This man, who's lame, is at the gate, and he is calling for alms. And when he's asking for alms for, for, uh, for money... He is revealing exactly what he thinks his biggest problem is and his best solution is. When he's, asked, when he's begging, what he is saying is, my problem is I have no money because of my illness. And because of my condition, I have no money, that's my problem. 
The solution is money. Like it or not, whether or not he believes in God, at this point, at least, we have no indication that he believes God can reach in or will reach in and fix his situation. So what is he relying on? Everything in the system. He's saying, if there's going to be healing for me, it's got to come from these people, the ones who are already here, because there's nothing outside that's going to help me. He, he may have believed in God, but functionally, we have no reason to think he still believes he can be healed of that congenital issue from his birth. Okay? So, when he says this, remember, he's 42 years old. We're going to learn next chapter that he's 42. So 42 years of being this way, let's not judge him. I can appreciate many people who have been ill from birth are rightly saying, this is my plot, this is my plight in life. This is what God has given to me, so I'm not going to dream for more because it's just going to set me up for a fall. So we can appreciate where he's coming from. But nonetheless, that's where he is. He thinks his problem is poverty and what's going to solve it is money. So when Peter shows up and John, but Peter again takes the lead, and Peter's first words to him, well, first are, look at me. And then he says, I have no silver and gold. Or in the King James, silver and gold have I none. I feel like it sounds like a pirate. I don't know. I know Peter was not a pirate, though he was a fisherman. That's close. Anyway, but silver and gold have I none. Now, the moment Peter says this, what he is saying is he's challenging the assumptions. Man and world, your assumption is you need money because that's the only thing that's going to fix your situation, something in the system. When Peter says, silver and gold have, or sorry, I have no silver and gold, but, it's the next words, but, what he is saying is, your assumptions are wrong. Your problem cannot be solved within the snow globe. It cannot be solved by something in the closed system. I don't have it. That's not the answer. You're asking for the wrong thing. But there's something outside of it that can help. And so he's actually challenging this man in our assumptions. And we see this all, all through his... Like, we see this challenge all today, right? Today, we see all the evil in the world, Christian or not, it's impossible to miss the fact that we are a pretty rotten world at times. Crime is high, hate, division, our political landscape is a nightmare. So it's hard to not see the problems. But what are the answers the world has for it? The world's answers are usually uh, education. People will stop hating one another when they've learned to understand who the other person is. Or if we throw more money at it, I recently heard somebody say, if we would just not spend so much money on military budgets, we would have cured cancer and global warming. So what is the, what is the narrative you're hearing all day from the world? The, the answer is, inside the world, we can fix our own problems. We don't need a world that has an outside force that can come in to fix it, because we have everything right here to fix ourselves. And the Bible pushes against that. Peter is pushing against that here and saying, no. The answer for your problem is not in you, and it's not in the pockets of the men around you or the women around you. It's in something else. And so, uh, I, could, I mean, we don't need to defend miracles. Right? I could do that. We could have a, a sermon where I just spend time defending why miracles may or may not happen. But I'm not going to do that. I'll leave it at what it does here, which is a challenge. The very idea and notion of, of miracles, of the miraculous, of something outside coming in, is enough to scare people or to anger them. And that's why there's such resistance, because if there is a force outside that can reach in, well, that changes the ballgame. It changes everything. And so we understandably resist it. And I'll close this point here. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, Miracles, says this, there comes a moment 
when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Or worse still, supposing he had found us. And this is the fear. The problem, one of the great resistors I see to miracles in people is not scientific, because even the scientific world is starting to question whether or not we understand everything. You don't have to be a Christian to start to think that there's things outside of what we know that are breaking the rules of physics. Instead, we say it's a bigger existential spiritual problem because if there is a God, then there's trouble for all of us. At least that's the way it would seem. So there's a challenge. First thing you see in this passage and when you read it is a challenge. You can't fix yourself. I'll use the line. I know I've said it before, but it's one of my favorites. D.L. Moody, who was mentioned earlier in the, in, in the talk, uh, once said, you know, if you have a man who is a thief and he's stealing from the railroad and you send him to university to cure him, he'll just come back and steal the whole train. Because education won't actually cure the man, it'll just make him a better thief. And so, similarly, this challenges and says, no, no, the problem we have in the world, the problems we have, are actually not curable within the world. Okay, first challenge. Second is change. So, if the man is challenged when Peter looks at him and, and, and speaks to him, then he is changed when Peter extends his hand and raises him up. And this change occurs not just in the man's body, but in everything, the way he thinks about the world, the way he looks at the world. It's not, the physical healing is actually a small part. And we know we're meant to see that this is a far bigger issue than just one man's legs being healed. And the reason we know Luke wants us to see that is because of what he does with his words. He uses the word leap. He says the man leaps to his feet, leaps out of the, off, the, off the ground, and then is leaping as he goes into the temple, which we'll talk about in a minute. But when he says the word leap, it should remind you of Isaiah 35. When Isaiah is speaking about the, about the Messiah returning, he says a lot of things are going to happen when the Messiah has come, and here's one of them. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And so what this man is actually experiencing, what they are seeing at that moment at the temple gate is they are seeing the fulfillment of all these promises. It's, in big words, it's the inauguration of the messianic kingdom. It's, it's the beginning. It's the, it's the, it's, I would say birth pains, but that sounds too, too terrible. It's like the appetizers. Probably better. It's the appetizer for something greater that's coming we're seeing here. And so, when the man experiences healing, what, has, what can't stay the same is the way he thought before. He can no longer say that this world is a closed system. His assumptions must change because he's, he's experienced it. And because now he lives in a world that is not closed, but a world that has healing for the deaf, for the blind, ear hearing for the healing for the sorry, healing for the blind, hearing for the deaf, walking for the lame, voice for the mute, waters for the deserts, and predators become docile. So he now lives in a completely different world. The world he thought was closed now is no longer closed. It's not even necessarily a chain link fence. It's a wide open world. Because now there is a God who can do more than he ever thought. And so he's not just challenged and then changed, he's shattered and remade. His entire worldview will change. It has to. 
If you're a Christian and you, and you claim that you once were dead and now are alive and you don't live accordingly, then maybe you've either forgotten the gospel or haven't met Christ. And that's okay. We forget the gospel, which is why we come week in and week out and hear it proclaimed again. Martin Luther was once asked, why do you preach the gospel every single week? And he said, because you forget it every single week. And he's right. We do. And so, becoming Christian, we're changed. And, and William Blake, another romantic poet, contemporary of, um, of Keats, says, the doors of perception were cleansed, or sorry, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. And so, for this man, at least, and for anyone who encounters this Christ, the world is all of a sudden wide open and infinite. The possibilities are endless as to what can or cannot happen. And when this man asks for alms, if you're at a Tuesday study, we talk about this word a lot. It's the word that means mercy. He, in his mind beforehand, says, what I want is mercy, and mercy is shown in money. But what is the mercy he receives instead? Healing. Because God doesn't give him what he wants, but what he longs for. See, this is why God is so good. He won't give you what you pray for. He'll give you what you would have prayed for if you knew what to pray for. Right? We pray for a better job, and God sometimes says, no, you're going to stay in that job. And you, you, you can get upset. But he knows. And with this man, he doesn't just give him what he wants. He gives him what he probably over 42 years had forgotten. That he was even, I can't even ask for this. I long to be healed. But I can't ask for it. 42 years, it's not going to happen. So he's forgotten. But the beating of the heart, that bass note that runs through his life, was heard by God and was answered by God in that moment. And so... He now believes that all brokenness can and will be healed. And we'll see. I'll show you how he does that in a minute. Um, but let me say this about Canada. Every Canadian believes similarly. Let me explain. Most Canadians reject God. They certainly reject the biblical God, even if they have other gods in their new, new ages or whatever uh, we create. They reject the biblical God. Yet, here's what I've never encountered. Even the hardest atheists I know will confess that they hope that one day they'll see their loved ones whole again. I don't believe in any of it. But whatever it is, if there's something, I'm going to see my mom and she won't have cancer. They won't be withered by age. There'll be some sort of renewal, some sort of restoration. Almost every Canadian I know thinks that way. And the answer of the Bible is, that's because there is that hope of restoration. But it's not going to come inside the system. Meaning it's not going to come by your nice works and by how much you donate. It's going to come by Christ and Christ alone. And C.S. Lewis offers these wonderful words that have always rung in my head. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness, of pure, of freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. I love it. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And we all yearn for that renewal and restoration. And that's because all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it's true. You long for it because it exists. Now, just because it exists doesn't mean you're going to get it, right? Because, so if a, starving, or a, a person dying of thirst on a raft in the ocean may never, ever get water. They may die on that raft. But the fact that they yearn for water tells us there's such a thing as water. Because in this world, God has given us answers for all the longings we have. And it's the age-old, again, Lewis line. If we find a yearning in us that has no satisfaction in this world, perhaps it's because we were not made for this world. 
And so if there's a longing for eternity, it's probably because there is one. If there's a longing for wholeness, it's probably because it is possible. The answer is to look at where it can be found rather than where we think it can be found. So, here's what, that's the last point. The last point is he not only is challenged, but he is changed in his mind. And when he encounters God, when he receives from God, he is then able, he becomes fresh and pure. C.S. Lewis says, we see it, but we don't become, we can't grasp the freshness and pureness. But when you meet God, you actually do, and that changes you. And this is the last point of commitment. And we're gonna, uh, I'll get to how this all wraps up, but let me start with a guy who is the, one of the great enemies of the church. And if he's probably, roll, if he, he's not rolling in his grave, because if the Bible's true, I don't know where, I don't want to say where he is. But Frederick Nietzsche, rabid atheist, no friend of Christianity at all, but he inadvertently says something that is perfect for what we're talking about. He says in one of his writings, and those who were seen dancing were thought to be crazy by those who could not hear the music. And so why is it that this lame man is the one who gets up, leaps, praises, and sings into the temple, but nobody else is? Because remember, I said it last week, and I'll say it again over and over, you're going to notice something in the book of Acts. Miracles don't convert people. Because here again, it says at the very end, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. Now, what happened to him? It's not until the next week's passage where Peter preaches that again people are changed. So why is it that in the midst of this event, this encounter, it is only he, the lame man, who is leaping and is impa- he's the only one who hears the music, to quote Nietzsche, and the rest are wondering what the heck he's dancing for. Why? And the answer is, I think, well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is this. When Peter speaks, when he, when he pronounces the healing, which he actually doesn't say anything about healing, he just says, get up and walk. It's more of a, it's a command more than it is any, anything else. But when he does that, you'll notice what he says. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So he knows Peter is not healing him. Faith healers out there, you watch on TV, you have no power. No power. Christ alone, his authority, that's what heals, if anything. Christ, nobody else. So he has to call on an authority outside of himself. And yet when Jesus heals, it's almost the identical story. Read it in Matthew, or sorry, Luke, Luke, same writer. Luke uh, 5, uh, 17 to 26. When you read that, look at what Jesus says. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Peter has to call on the name of someone else. Jesus says, I don't need that. I'm the authority, says Jesus. Right? That's it. And so here's what's happening. When Peter calls and says, by the, by the name of Christ, stand up and walk, he is the mediator for a meeting, a meeting between God and this lame man. And so who is the man encountering? God. He's encountering Christ in that moment. That's what he's encountering, the power in the name of Jesus. That's who he meets. Everybody in the audience, in the crowd, watching, who do they encounter? The man. All they see is the man who encountered Jesus, which is good. That at least get their attention and may cause them to wonder and be amazed. But until they have an experience of Christ themselves, they will not be saved. And this, you see it again all through. And when he meets him, it's not just that he meets the power of Jesus to raise him. It's because he meets the love of Jesus. And how do I know that? Because again, Luke puts an Easter egg in here to tell us. He's trying to draw our attention to something. And it's, I would say, mind-bottling. Not boggling, mind-bottling. This is what's happening. 
I know it's a joke. Bad one. Look at what happened in the very first verse. Peter and John are going to the temple. And, what, and why are we told they're going to the temple at the ninth hour? Why does it matter? Well, this is why. Because if you read Exodus 29 and Numbers 28, you see that God says to Israel, amongst all the other things you're supposed to do, every single day, every single day, you must make two offerings of two perfect lambs, one at 9 a.m., the third hour, and one at 3 p.m., the ninth hour, morning and evening. You have to do those, and there should be prayer around it. And so what faithful Jews like Peter and John are doing, which tells us something, the early church still went to the temple and still worshipped Jewish ways, at least at first. And when they get there at the ninth hour, they're showing up for the evening sacrifice to pray for it. Because while the, the priests are doing the sacrifice behind the, in the holy place, they are out there praying in the temple of men or the temple of Israelites. So they're on their way into there. So it makes sense that the man is there because he's trying to capitalize on the traffic going to the temple. So he's trying to get as many alms as he can. But here's the interesting thing. Why are we told it at all? Why not just say, well, they're going to the temple and they stumble on this guy? Why tell us it's that specific sacrifice? This is why. Because, remember, three, the third hour and the ninth hour are the sacrifices. And when you open up the final chapter, or second, second to last chapter, of Mark, here's what you read. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so what Luke is showing us, if you have the eyes to see, is that Jesus, what is happening at that moment is he's not just encountering God's power to heal. He's encountering the love that knew what this man longed for and was willing to die for his healing. And when you see this, that Jesus dies for him, you begin to realize that he, he, here you have this man who was at the temple gate thinking that his hope was from the people outside the sacrifice. If I'm going to be helped, it's by those outside the sacrifice, never dreaming that his only help was actually happening in the temple, in the sacrifice. And that is what the world has done time and again. We always think the help is going to come somewhere else, not from God. But the moment he sees this, he not only gets up healed, but what does he do with his healing? He doesn't say, okay, good, finally now I can just show up to church twice a week. Now I can just show up, or twice a month, sorry, twice a week would be pretty good twice a month. He doesn't, it's not a lukewarm thing. He does two things with this new healed body. He gets up and he goes directly into the temple, says immediately into the temple. So he goes to worship and he's praising out loud. So we see these two things. Going to the temple is the gratitude. He goes and thanks God for what happened. He worships, worships with God's people and says, thank you, because he knows now the source of his healing is not outside or not inside the globe, but outside. It's God. And so he worships out of gratitude, not because he has to, not out of guilt, not because he likes the hymns or not the hymns or, the, or whatever. He worships because of God. And then he, prays, he preaches out loud, and he's praising out loud publicly because he now is a public witness. Because the change that comes to a Christian cannot remain inside. It is the moment you know the world is this sort of a one, that where God is active and changes the world and wants to change the world and will change the world, you become uh, an ambassador of that change. And so he can't help but start talking. And so Christians who are Christians, 
who've had this experience with the living God who is powerful and loving, don't sit in the church and never do any... It's What is it? You're so heavenly-minded, you're of no worldly good, right? It's not the way it works. Quite the opposite. Those who have been most impacted by Christ are the most sold out for the world. And one example, and there's so many, would be a guy like Martin Luther King Jr., who's a man who's a Christian. He's had an impact by God. And because he's been impacted by God, he doesn't say, well, good, now I have peace in the midst of my suffering. He instead tries to somehow, knowing it's going to cost him, he then says, I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to live this out. I'm going to try to bring what has happened to me into, the, into wherever I can in this world. And so in that wonderfully po- popular speech, the I have a dream speech, he says, I have a dream that for my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. His, his experience of God in his life didn't stay in the past it was present in the moment when he's saying that. Today he has a dream, but the dream is out there. And it's based on, I know what God has done to me and for me and what he's going to do. And I'm praying and trying to actively bring about that change here and now. And that's a commitment that Christians make. Christians don't stay indifferent. This man, not only, he couldn't. He could have used his legs and gone right away and smacked the guys who didn't want to ever give him any money. He could have went back and hit the people who bullied him as a child. He could have even smacked a priest because, you know, lame people weren't allowed in the temple. And so this is the first time he's allowed in the temple. He doesn't go out of bitterness. He instead takes that change that's in him and he tries to press it out into the world. And his commitment is renewed, and not renewed, maybe even started, I don't know, where the level of his faith was before, because of his experience. And when you and I read this passage, we have the same opportunity. So let me finish this. Christians, you're healed from not just, you may, you may, this man, many people were not healed. You may suffer in your life, but you've been healed from the greatest wound you have, which is sin, so that you know that wonderful old hymn, It is well with my soul. Commit to this God. Don't be half hearted. Commit to Him. Worship and praise like this man. Not because you're a bad Christian if you don't, because you should want to if you've been healed. And if you're a skeptic, I'll say this. Um, I often have skeptics say things like, if I just had 100% proof, because I only believe on authority, 100%, 100%. If I know exactly, if I knew there was a God, if he showed up and you know, uh, built a TP in front of me and preached to me, then I'd believe. And they say they need 100% proof. And you ask them and say, do you always do that? Is that the way you live? Oh, yes. I live by only proof. Only proof. It has to be 100%. And my response is, when you go to the pharmacy, do you analyze the drugs before you take them? Or do you trust the person who gave them to you? When you go to to Toronto, do you trust the roads will get you there and the map and the GPS? Or do you say, no, no, I'm going to scrutinize everything. No human being lives without trusting an authority. And when you don't believe in God and miracles, you're trusting a specific authority. And so don't tell me you don't trust, that you need proof. No, you don't. You don't need proof because you believe everything the world believes without any proof. We all do, so give it up. I'll say this, though. If you come to church, it's not enough. Because coming to church, it sounds like a good start, and it is. But if you're only spending time around Christians, you're like the people in the crowd. You're going to see people changed by God, but you're never going to be changed yourself until you meet him, not until you meet Carl. You're going to meet Christ, not me, somebody else. And if you don't, this is what's going to happen. One of two things will happen if you don't meet Christ in church. 
The first one is you'll be grow, you'll, you're going to grow to resent God because you're going to say, look at all these people. Their lives are improving. They seem to be at peace. They seem to be content. I've got nothing. Nothing. And it's your fault. You didn't make it. And so if you never encounter him, you're just going to grow resentful because you're going to never think God is giving you what he, what he should have. Or maybe you'll be very happy, but then you're going to look and see all these folks around you and you're going to say, what nice people. Look at how they've been changed. Look how great they are. But over time, what's going to happen is if you don't experience what they're experiencing, you're going to then start to think, you know what? They're all just faking it, I think. They're just better fakers than I am because there's no way, there's nothing real here. I haven't really met anything supernatural. And so just coming to church is not enough. You have to come and not just desire to be transformed, but you must desire the transformer. You must desire Christ and not what he can give you. And that's hard. And so it may take time. And it may, I don't know when God's going to do it, but you must seek him and not his church because we'll let you down. We're going to let you down probably today. Christ alone. Seek Jesus. And I'll tell you what, when you find him, you're going to find he's been seeking you the whole time. You're going to think you've set out on a journey to find him, and by the time he finds you, you won't even care that he's been chasing you. You'll give up your, humil- your pride, and you'll say, I don't care how you found me. I'm just glad you did. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, <clears throat> thank you, Father. Thank you for this encounter with this man. It's amazing that we don't know his name. <laughs> you know what you're doing. We don't need to know. But it's probably because you want us to insert ourselves in the story, Lord. He is nameless because we are all lame. We're all unable to run to you and to walk to you until you reach out and lift us up. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the example here. Lord, help us to allow ourselves to be challenged. Lord, allow us to, help us to lay bare our, our, our motives, our assumptions, and just say, Father, this is what I believe. This is what I've been taught to believe. Uh, show me otherwise. Teach me otherwise. And let us be humble in seeking that. And I pray, Father, that you would do that, for the, not just for this man, as you did for this man, but as you time and again, as we're hearing about what you're doing for people around the world, sometimes through dreams, sometimes through direct witnesses or your word, all these different ways. Lord, I pray that all who come and say, I want to meet this one who has power and love to change me. Um, Lord, I pray that even now, as Janet said earlier, that you would be working in the hearts of everyone, some of us to get us off the couch to commit, some of us to turn our hearts to you for the first time. But I pray that you'd be active the way you promise you will be, loving us and pouring into us as we uh, seek your name. Father, we love you, and we ask this all in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen.